Speaking of Christmas traditions, I want to talk to you about one of the most original and enduring traditions that we have, especially here in America, the ugly Christmas sweater. Anybody have one on? Anybody just have an ugly sweater on? No, I'm just kidding. Sweaters decorated for Christmas made their appearance in the 1950s. They were called Jingle Bell sweaters, and they featured Christmas-themed decorations. They were never intended to be ugly. The Google says that the very first ever ugly sweater party was hosted in 2002 in Vancouver, British Columbia by two men named Chris Boyd and Jordan Birch. Every year since, they have hosted the original ugly Christmas sweater party at the Commodore Ballroom. The annual party has a dress code. What do you think it is? An ugly Christmas sweater. You won't be admitted without one. Pinnacle Peak Steakhouse in Scottsdale, Arizona has an unusual dress code. If anybody comes in wearing a necktie, a server will sneak up on them with a pair of scissors and cut it off. What could go wrong? But the clip tie then joins thousands of others hanging from the ceiling. You might recall the episode of Seinfeld in which Jerry was invited to join the exclusive Friars Club. When he arrived, he was initially denied entrance. The club had a dress code. Men must wear a suit or at least a sport jacket. We grew up with no shirt, no shoes, no service. The current generation is growing up with no mask, no entering. Thanks, COVID-19. Long ago, before COVID-19, couples were married in ceremonies that included invited guests. The bride and groom may not have insisted on a dress code for their guests, but most, if not all, of their friends and family adhered to basic wardrobe appropriateness. There's a wedding with a dress code in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in a parable, Jesus told, using a wedding celebration to describe an important truth about heaven. It starts like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. In many ancient cultures, a king provided garments for his guests to ensure that they would appear before him properly dressed. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, for example, Joseph was a prisoner in the Egyptian jail. When the Pharaoh called for him to come and interpret his dreams, it says they brought him quickly out of the dungeon and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. The king in Jesus' parable furnished the invited guests with a wedding garment. To come to the celebration and refuse the garment was a terrible insult. The man without the proper wedding garment could expect to be denied entrance or to be thrown out. Have you ever been thrown out of a place? You don't have to admit it. I'll admit it for you. It was before I was a Christian. Uh, it's a sad point in my life. I forget what we were doing. That's part of the problem. But anyway, <laughs> a Bible is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A Bible parable, rather. It's a teaching aid to simplify spiritual truths. And so listen to what Jesus said next. This is Matthew 22, 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You were definitely not expecting anything like that. Maybe ask him to leave, but outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth? Where is that anyway? 
Well, it's not on earth. It's language the Bible uses to describe hell. It's a place of separation from God, a place of eternal conscious torment. It might be a good idea to pause and identify the main players and places in this parable. The king represents God the Father. The son represents his son, Jesus Christ. The wedding celebration represents the joy of being in heaven for eternity. Those wearing a wedding garment are people who have believed in Jesus and are thereby properly dressed for eternity. The man without a garment represents all who in unbelief reject Jesus as their savior. Heaven has a strict dress code. Any person without the proper garment violates heaven's dress code, and not only can he or she not enter, you are remanded to hell for eternity. What is so important about this garment? Why do we need it? Well, we can begin to answer that by explaining how we are dressed without this garment. When God looks at a person from heaven, he sees him or her differently than we do. There's a passage in an Old Testament book, the book of Zechariah, that will explain what I mean. In the passage, the high priest of Israel, whose name was Joshua, was on the earth in the Jewish temple performing his duties. This is not the Joshua who led the Israelites into the promised land, not the Joshua of the book of Joshua. Joshua was a popular Jewish name. And uh, so this is another Joshua who at the time was the high priest. And so Zechariah chapter three begins, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. On the earth, Joshua was going about his duties in the Jewish temple. In the unseen supernatural realm, Joshua was standing before the Lord. We have that sense, don't we? I mean, in, in the natural realm, we're all seated here in our sanctuary, but we know that there's a supernatural realm that sees us as well. Uh, and they see us differently than we are seeing ourselves. The high priest had a unique wardrobe that was his dress coat. His garments were nothing short of magnificent. He wore, for example, a breastplate with 12 precious stones, one to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. These jewels were in gold settings. In the first row, there was a ruby, a topaz, and an emerald. In the second row, a carbuncle, a sapphire, and a diamond. In the third row, a hyacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And in the fourth row, there was a barrel and an onyx and a jasper. Precious stones all, large precious stones. The high priest wore a total of eight different holy garments. Of these, four were of the same type worn by all the priests, but four were unique to him. You might remember in Star Wars prequels, Queen Amidala wears an insane amount of outfits. It was maybe the best part of those movies. In Phantom Menace alone, she wears at least nine different outfits. Now, the high priest didn't have that many outfits, but he did change on the occasion of Yom Kippur. It's very interesting. I'll let one commentator describe it for us. He says, the high priest had two sets of holy garments, the golden garments and a set of plain white linen garments to which he wore on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day, he would change his holy garments four times, beginning in the golden garments, but changing into the linen garments for the first two moments when he would enter the Holy of Holies, and then change back again into the golden garments after each time. He would immerse in the ritual bath before each change of garments, washing his hands and his feet after removing the garments, and again before putting the other set on. If in our passage, it was the Day of Atonement, 
Heaven was watching Joshua as he went through the rituals, changing from one outfit and back again as he would wash in between. You know the expression, you can't judge a book by its cover? Joshua looked his best, covered by his beautiful and costly garments, and washed. He didn't look that way to everyone. Verse 3 tells us how he looked to heaven. Now Joshua, the high priest, was clothed with filthy garments. This word filthy can mean smeared with human excrement. There's a scene in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the Kevin Costner version involving filthy rags. A master of disguise, Robin Hood robed uh, himself with the torn and tattered garment of a beggar in order to avoid being detected while visiting Maid Marian in the church. To make it even more believable, on the way in, he picked up dung from the road and rubbed it all over his robe so that he had dung and the smell of dung on him uh, and no one would pay any attention to him. He was filthy in this definition of the word. I'm going to issue a warning right now. The next few minutes might gross you out. To put it another way, all the little boys will love it. I think you'd be surprised at how many people each year fall into cesspools or septic tanks. Ralph Santos, 88 years old, weed whacking in his backyard when a cesspool collapsed, creating a sinkhole. He fell into the hole, holding his head above the contents of the cesspool using the electrical cord from the weed whacker. He was found a short time later by his wife, who called 911. In other filthy news, a man, man charged, this is the tip of a terrible iceberg, but anyway, a man charged with the first degree murder of a New Orleans police officer delayed jury selection in his trial by rubbing feces on his face, head, and mouth in the courtroom. He was declared incompetent to stand trial. In 2018, a United Airlines flight bound from Chicago to Hong Kong was diverted to an emergency landing in Alaska when a passenger started, and I quote, smearing feces everywhere. Do you know that there are several conditions that can make your breath smell like feces? Bowel obstruction, ketoacidosis, liver failure, and something so terrible it's got an acronym called GERD, G-E-R-D. Fool your friends with that one. Hey, uh, I think you might have GERD. Now, I'm trying to gross you out. I, I, I'm holding back. The fact is, this is an exceedingly gross image that the Bible uses to get the point across. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, we might encounter this thing, oh, filthy garments. I need to throw my, you know, I, I was eating spaghetti and my tie got into the spaghetti or I got a stain on my white pants or something, a little stain remover here, throw it in the, you know, and stuff. Or I've been out working all day and I'm just a mess. That's not the image here. It's not, it's not a laundry situation at all. It's a terrible filthiness uh, that has no place in public, let alone in heaven. Did Joshua fall into sewage rushing to the temple? Why would he minister in the temple in such stained and spoiled garments? Well, we know this is how heaven saw him. And he didn't fall. Adam fell. We call the willful disobedience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden the fall. God created them in his image with genuine free will. Not only did being in the image of God mean they had to have free will, it was also necessary for them to have a choice because love cannot be forced or it ceases to be love. Our original parents chose poorly, and that's a great understatement. They fell, bringing ruin upon God's creation. 
They saw themselves as naked. From our context, God would see them as being clothed in filthy rags. We left Joshua in the temple. You're being shown the same man in the same garments from two perspectives. From the natural earthly perspective, his garments were fine. From the supernatural heavenly perspective, his garments were filthy. The Bible describes every human being that way. The Bible says all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. You and I are fecal breath, dung smeared cesspool floaters when seen from heaven. None of us are righteous. We all fall short of the glory of God. Uh, we are sinners. Now, there's so many really, really evil people in the world, it can be hard to believe that you are too sinful to be allowed into heaven. Just this week, I was reminded of the Zodiac Killer. Uh, some of you were old enough to remember him up in the Bay Area. Uh, they finally deciphered one of his uh, ciphers that has been eluding them for, for many, many years. And so you, think, you start thinking about the Zodiac or Son of Sam or Ted Bundy, some of these people, and you think, now, those people deserve hell. They're certainly not going to heaven. But what have I ever done? Well, God's law clarifies for us. Jesus once said, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Each of us has been angry. Can you spell road rage? Right? I mean, maybe I've actually quit having road rage because I am assuming everyone has a weapon now. And I've seen, this is what YouTube does for you. It, it makes you aware of what is really going on out there. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, how they capture this stuff on camera, I don't know, but these road rage videos, people do crazy things and they end up dead uh, because somebody turned in front of them. It's like, hey, it was my fault even though it wasn't my fault. Let's just get home, all right? Uh, but uh, all of us, we've, we've been angry. Anger is a sign that there's something wrong. Uh, it, some of us will admit that we've been angry enough to kill people. We just don't go through with it. I mean, that's good, that's a good thing. I mean, murder is worse than anger. But Jesus is basically saying, he went through a whole list of things to say, hey, there's something wrong at a heart level. Not just outwardly, but at the level of the heart. Billy Graham put it this way, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, the human heart. All of us have broken many of God's laws. Breaking even one law one time is more than enough to keep us out of heaven. Have you ever lied? No matter how white the lie was or how important it was that you lie. Have you ever stolen anything, no matter how small it was? Here's one that we've all violated. Have you ever coveted something, wanted something that wasn't yours? Of course we have. We've all broken God's law. We are all guilty. The fact that someone might be a worse sinner doesn't change the fact that I'm a sinner. If you ever find yourself in court, they don't shuffle through the files and say, who's the worst person here? What's the most heinous crime? Let's charge that guy or gal. The rest of you can go home. You're also criminals, but we don't care. Your, your crime doesn't let... No, if you've got a parking ticket, they're going to treat you just the way they treated that murderer. Scary in court. My advice about going to court, don't go there. Settle out of court before it's too late. It's a scary place. God intervened on behalf of Joshua. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity, your sin from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. The robe God was speaking of wasn't a physical garment. 
It was unseen by men on the earth, but visible to the beings in heaven. You need a robe to enter heaven. It's a very particular robe. In another place in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, it's described for us this way. Isaiah writes and says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah is telling us that God gives you a robe, the robe of righteousness, and with it you are a welcomed guest. You are properly dressed for heaven. In the wedding garment story, Jesus told, and in the verse we just read, the robe was given. He has clothed me. He has covered me. The same was true with Joshua. It was given to him freely. The robe of righteousness is never deserved and it cannot be earned. It must be given to you. It is a free gift from God. We call this free gift of God salvation by grace through faith. Where do we get this robe of righteousness? It's only found in one place. It's found at the cross of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross was sufficient to robe all sinners, we might say. The Bible says he's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. That means his death is sufficient to save all who come to him and believe. And those who do are saved for eternity. There's a verse that explains Jesus' death on the cross as if it were an exchange. It reads like this. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A paraphrase of this is to say God put the wrong on Jesus who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. And so Jesus was severely beaten prior to his crucifixion, stripped of his clothing, nailed naked to the cross. Heaven saw him differently. He had righteousness to give as you would give a robe to all who would believe in him. And so while he was on the cross taking our filthiness, he was giving his righteousness. That exchange takes place. It's a very one-sided gift exchange, is it not? You ever had a bad gift exchange? People who don't obey the $5 rule and you get them something crummy and they get you something nice or vice versa. I'm sorry, this doesn't really have much to do with the context, but... Uh, one year, my daughter uh, had gone to Montana and they brought me back a gift. It was uh, apparently very famous in Montana and probably why so many people from the church here are moving to Montana uh, in retirement. But I opened the box and it was what they call a turd bird. Anybody ever seen a turd bird? Montana's famous for them. They, they get uh, petrified pieces of turds and then they put thing, decorations on them to make it look like a bird. Hence the turd bird. It's become a white elephant gift. Somebody here in the church has it now. I don't know who, but uh, it's one of the great white elephant gifts of all time. So that had nothing to do with anything except that I thought about it and I figured, why not? But this is a very one-sided gift exchange. Jesus is offering you right standing with God as if it were a robe that you could simply put on and receive that would get you into heaven. In exchange, he's taking all of your personal filthiness as a sinner, you're sin, born in a sinner, born imputed with sin and individual sins, and those of the entire world of men. Jesus gives you the robe of righteousness you must have in order to enter heaven and avoid hell. It is an exclusive garment. 
I'm sure some of you frustrate yourselves by playing golf. Even if you're not a golfer, you've heard of the Masters Tournament. Since 1949, a green jacket has been awarded to the champion. It's a garment you can only get in that one place on earth by becoming a champion of the masters. Jesus alone has the robe of righteousness to give. He is the unique God-man, God come in human flesh, the only one righteous, who rose from the dead, showing he alone has power to save. No religious leader or religion can give you this robe. No philosopher or philosophy can give you this robe. No other supernatural being can give you this robe. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous enough to deserve heaven. What we deserve for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God demonstrates his own love towards us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You must receive this robe before you die. There's no chance to ask for it after death. The exchange takes place the instant you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Again, I emphasize that this robe is only given freely. At the Friars Club, Jerry Seinfeld's problem was solved when the management provided a jacket for him. All he had to do was accept it and put it on in order to enter and dine. A fun fact about the robe. Once you've received it, you're encouraged to adorn it. The whole of Isaiah 61.10 reads like this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I've over the years worked with the Lions Clubs over in Lemoore. Any Lions here today? I'm not going to make fun of them so you can admit it if you are. Good people. At their meetings, they wear vests that are adorned with pins and patches that they've received in service to the club and to the community. Lots of uh, other service clubs do the same thing. You've seen guys and gals wearing these vests with patches and pins, and some of them have been lions or whatever for the long time. They've got stuff on top of stuff, uh, you know, for stuff they've done in places they've been. You're given your robe of righteousness when you receive Jesus as your Savior. He robes you. You're fit for heaven, as it were. Afterwards, you have the privilege of adorning your robe with good works. Uh, they're called jewels in the scripture. In the passage in which the Apostle Paul talks about you being rewarded by Jesus for your good works after you appear before him in heaven, he describes them by saying they are like gold, silver, and precious stones. And so you get the idea that you've got the robe, every Christian gets it at the time of salvation. Then as you discover God's good works for your life, as he empowers you to do them, you earn your patches, as it were. I'm going to have a big Hanford patch on the back, hopefully. You know, that'll be my main patch. And so, uh, because I've been here, and then I'll have some tiny little patches, hopefully, somewhere else. Some of you have you know, several garments, I'm sure, change of clothes. This is my day robe. Uh, this is my evening robe. But it's, it's not a competition, though. I'm not in competition with you. Each of us stands before the Lord by ourselves. And that's, be, that's why it's between him and me. Over the years, people say, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to have crowns and we don't care about them. We're just going to throw them at Jesus' feet. That, that's stupid. We are going to care about them because we want to look good for Jesus the way a bride wants to look good for her 
bridegroom. It's not a competition. The bride, she's not trying to look good for other guys that are there. She only cares about her bridegroom. And between the two of them, and she, she wants to look beautiful. Don't you want to look beautiful for Jesus in the sense that you've adorned your robe with his good works that he's called upon you to do? Of course you do. One of the hymns goes like this. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. If it's your tradition at Christmas to decorate an ugly sweater, you do it once a year and then it's done. Jesus gives you the opportunity to adorn your precious robe every day and many times every day. If you're a believer in Christ, stay busy bedazzling your robe by discovering the good works that Jesus has before ordained for you to walk in. If you're not a believer, consider this. You've seen celebrities on the red carpet. As they make their way towards the event, they stop to chat with entertainment reporters. They almost always ask the women especially, who are you wearing? To which they answer Vera Wang or Armani or Gucci. If you're not in Christ, you're not a Christian, you're not born again, you haven't received the Lord, asked him to forgive you your sins, who are you wearing hoping to get into heaven? Thinking about all that we've talked about here, the garment analogy and, and parable and all, who are you wearing? Christians here, we're wearing Jesus Christ. He's given us a robe of righteousness when we came to the cross, repented of our sin, and received him as our Lord. Who are you wearing? You're wearing somebody. If you're a Buddhist, you're wearing Buddha. If you're a Mormon, you're wearing Joseph Smith. If you're just nuts, you're wearing L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> but, I mean, if you think about it that way, see, these things, God, it's amazing that God can communicate with us at all right? I mean, we have a hard time with animals, but some, you know, we can get through to some animals, dogs and cats. They understand more than you think, but you still can't communicate. Don't you wish you could just actually tell your dog, don't do that anymore, and that he would understand? But other animals, you can't talk to birds, really, uh, and stuff. And, and yet God, who is infinite, created, a, we have a dialogue with God. We have, and, and he wants to make things easy. And so he says, look, Think of salvation this way. It's like you wearing a robe that I gave you. And if you're not wearing it, you're wearing somebody else's robe. And if you're into any of these religions or philosophies or things like that, you're wearing that robe. For a while before I was a Christian, I had the robe of existentialism. I was an existentialist. I thought, wow, this is a great philosophy. It was stupid. It's not gonna get you to heaven. In fact, if you're existential, they have to tell you not to kill yourself because it's so morbid and absurd. And so, so think of yourself, if you're not a believer, this is a valid question. Who are you wearing on your path towards death? Who is it you're trusting that after you die, you still have that robe? If it's any of these things other than Jesus Christ, you're headed for weeping of, and gnashing of teeth in a place of conscious eternal punishment. And that's not what is necessary because Jesus died so that you could be saved. Buddha, Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard, none of them died for you. None of them took upon themselves your filthy rags in exchange for the righteousness necessary for heaven. None of them rose from the dead with the power to save you and to sanctify you and to one day glorify you. And so we say no Jesus, no robe, no heaven.